Speaking of that, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Luke and chapter 5. We've been in this amazing gospel now for since December. It's, um, I call it amazing because I'm, I'm really being blown away by it. I've always loved Dr. Luke, and we went through his other book, the book of Acts, once before as a church and saw the birth of the early church, which was amazing. And uh, we're finishing up chapter 5 today. So let me read the passage, and then I'm going to pray one more time just to seal this and anoint this, I hope, today. And then we'll dive in. We're going to begin in verse 33 and go to verse 39, the last story in chapter 5 today, the conclusion, more or less, sort of. Read with me, would you? And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Father, uh, once again, we come before you humbly this morning and just, we thank you, we praise you, and Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning, I pray this morning that you would give me energy and strength and, and the words um, from the page that you've given me through study this week, but also just uh, whatever comes to mind that you would just speak to me. I pray, Lord, for everyone here, my brothers and sisters and friends and guests. I pray that you would illuminate their minds, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work of touching hearts. Only you can do that. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So uh, after five weeks, we're finishing chapter five today. <laughs> uh, five weeks in one chapter. Uh, in this chapter, uh, Luke, as we've seen, has listed five amazing stories or significant interactions Jesus has had with individuals that, that culminate in this story today. It's from, from a fisherman, the fisherman Peter in the first story, and then there was the leper that Jesus touched and healed and made clean again, and then there was the paralytic who he forgave his sins and, and then healed him as well. It's just been an incredible passage all along. And then last week, we saw the story of Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, that Jesus calls to follow him, this hated man in Jerusalem, in the, pardon me, in the, in the Capernaum city that he was in, that, that he's invited into a meal with Jesus and all these sinners and tax collectors in his home. It's an amazing story. And Luke concludes with this story, Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples. Things are coming to a head. They're coming to a head in this chapter. And it's part of Luke's orderly plan, orderly account that he's had all along to bring us to this point. It really is amazing. We arrived at the thesis verse, um, verse 30, uh, 32 last week, and it is this. Jesus says this, and it's, it's his response to the Pharisees who are like, what are you doing? What are you doing eating with these people, these lowlifes? What are you doing? And this is the thesis really of the gospel. It's the thesis of this gospel, the gospel of Luke, but the gospel in total, and it's why Jesus came. He said these words. They're, they're stunning. He says, I have not come to call the goodies, the righteous, the people who think they're good enough. 
but sinners to repentance. It's just a wonderful thing that we saw last week that Jesus declares this, which means He came for all of you and me, all of us. It's just a remarkable and wonderful thing. Every single person that Jesus has encountered so far in chapter 5, every single one of them it fits the description of someone who Jesus has come for, right? Every single one of them has, except the problem is some of them just don't see it that way, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious types, they just don't see it that way. So now that we see the importance of this passage that concludes this chapter, I'd like to focus, I want to focus on a couple of big picture things for with us first so that we, we see the meaning of this chapter. And I've given the title to this message today as, I've called it Feasting with Jesus. And some of you are going to say, wait a second, <laughs> my ESV or my Bible says at the beginning of this passage, a question about fasting. Right. We're going to see what this is really all about in a second. First, I want to talk to you about the whole idea of food and meals, because really that's what happened last week was this great feast that Matthew invited all of his tax collector friends to be part of, right? When you consider, think about this, when God created you and I, when he created mankind in his image, in fact, it's pretty interesting, I think, that he created us as human beings with a need to eat every day, a need, absolute need for food several times a day. And I think for the most part, we, we don't give a lot of thought to it as to why we need to eat. We don't give a lot of thought to that. We just know we do, right? But we do give a lot of thought or have a lot of concerns with ourselves about what and when, right? About what we eat and when we eat. What we eat gets a lot of ink. Well, actually, today it gets a lot of posts, doesn't it? Like on Facebook and Instagram, look at what a beautiful meal I made, right? Or these potatoes I exploded. It's amazing, right? I know. It's, it's out there. I mean, we have recipes, right? Um, we, we have recipes. We have diets. We learn about nutrition. We learn about what fuels us and what doesn't. Gluten's a bad thing. Pretty much universal thought right now, just so you know, right? We spend a lot of time on the what. A lot of time on the what. In our consumer-focused, I think, and obviously very rich culture, we've actually taken food to a whole new level. It's now up there and has the status in the minds of most people. It's right up there with, with our homes, like how beautiful they are on Pinterest, etc., right? And, and clothing and, and travel and recreation and sex. It, food is right up there. It's the reason why we have Food Network TV. I'm a subscriber. I love it. I watch every show. There's great ones on Chef's Table on Netflix, right? That's why we have that, though. And, of course, we have celebrity chefs, idols. <laughs> That's how much we've actually elevated this thing called food in our world today. We've really elevated it. But the when, when really is a moving target, isn't it, right? It, it's like, when is like, I mean, we know that the standard is three meals a day. Like, we know when it should be morning, lunch, dinner. We know that that. But in our busy, busy world, this reason why, again, we have drive throughs and fast food is because, like, <laughs> when is when I'm hungry, Mostly. And so one of our approaches to food today is, well, I need to eat. I need to fuel my body. I need water. I need to have these things. But also, also when we feel hungry, food can also become, for some of us, and for some of us it happens throughout our lives, and for some people it's an ongoing battle, it becomes a form of comfort, doesn't it? Food. The, the when then is when we are feeling insecure or, or sad or anxious, and we associate food with comfort. And security. 
Now, here's another thought about food. Do you remember when you were an infant? There's lots of them in our church, but do you remember? You probably don't, right? You probably don't remember when you were a baby, when you were an infant. Uh, but if you could, you would remember that you were either probably breastfed or with a bottle. But, but the reality is, the bottom line was, is that you needed, you depended on someone to feed you. You couldn't do that for yourself. They had the necessary to, to do it, and, and they fed you. you. You were completely dependent on someone else to feed you. Now, as most parents here with small children will attest, I think, right, uh, th- there are two milestones of independence that we're all hoping and praying, actually three, but um, our son Jonathan at 23 years of age is at that third point, which is move out, <laughs> get a job, you know, look after yourself. But the first two of most parents is when they're able to you know, feed themselves, right? That's a, like a sign of independence. It's a good thing. It's a milestone. And the second, of course, is potty. Come on, you know, it's we get to that point of independence and it's like, yes, our children are growing up. Now, as adults, I think we feel that we've graduated. We've helped our children graduate or we have graduated individually when we get to that point in our lives when we are independent. Our culture teaches that. But the question is, when it comes to food, really? Are we independent? We might think we are. We might act like we are. Well, I can provide for myself. You know, I can. Well, actually, I, I want to suggest to you that we're not. We're not. We're fully dependent. I was thinking about on the way down here today. I mean, I, I love sushi. I love fish. I'm just thinking that that, that ocean out there now that the, it's been cleaned up in House Sound, which is awesome, the fish are back, and there's, they're always there, and it, they just keep multiplying. They just, no matter what we do as human beings to destroy the environment and the water and so forth, it's, they just keep being there. Let's look at when it happened and why that is so. Genesis 2 verse 9 tells us this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I mean, right from the garden, the whole point is He creates us. He creates us with this need for food and to eat. And then right away it's like, you can depend on me. I will provide for you. And He does. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. And so we learn from the very beginning that was, it was God who created, and this word is important, ex nihilo in the Latin, out of nothing. It is God who created these things and supplies all the food that we eat, that we need. Nothing has changed since that day. No matter how advanced and, and how self-sufficient and independent we think we are, nothing has changed from that day. Listen, this is important. I've said this before in a, a different series we're in, but you know what? We don't create anything. We, we use terms like that. Well, look at this beautiful masterpiece of a meal that the chef created. Look at his creation. Look at my dress or design. Look at this creation. We don't, guys. It's the level to which we, quite frankly, have become a little bit proud and maybe arrogant to think that we create anything. We don't create anything. What we do is we make meals out of things that God already provides. Amen? We make stuff, which is great, and we, we can be creative in the way that we make things. But it is God that provides. He set it up so that He would be the provider so that we would depend on Him. It's a beautiful picture of what God has done. Well, you know the, the, the story, of course. 
uh, everything in the first seven days of creation was good, 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 and very good, right? Everything was good. Food especially and all the plants and everything that God provided us was good. But what did we do? We ate wrongly. We ate wrongly. You know the story. Genesis 3, 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the first thing that she sees, right? Is that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Well, it was very, very good looking, very pretty. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, wise, as wise as God. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Being the lame guy that he was just sitting there letting her be the guinea pig. That's right? what he did, men. This act, of course, was motivated by what? It was motivated by Eve and Adam's desire to be independent, right? We'll be able to look after ourselves. We'll be wise. We'll know what God knows. He knows the good and evil. He knows all things. And if we know that, we're we're good. We can be independent. Well, of course, the result of this desire for independence was the introduction of sin and brokenness and evil and everything that we currently experience today, including decay and it's just so much that came from that. The consequences that God laid out in the chapter later tell us quite clearly, they tell us that despite the fact that God is still the one who makes the plants and animals and kingdom grow and sustains them, eating wrongly came at a great cost. Great cost. What was supposed to be, think about it, what was supposed to be an ongoing buffet, a banquet, which would require nothing from us but just picking, right? Like... That was the garden, the way it was. No, now it's going to be about pain and toil. And in the worst case scenario, hunger. And there's a lot of that in our world, isn't there? There's a lot of people going hungry. And I think I just read an article this week that the table scraps from U.S. and Canada every year could feed all of the hungry three times over every year. How sad is that? We have a warped attitude towards food. So I've said this more than a few times in this series. Actually, there's one more point that I want to make from that, and that is this. Food clearly has played a huge role since God created the heavens, the earth, and all of us. And there's one other element to it, though. God created this, when you think about it, not just to fuel our bodies and this need and this dependence of Him, but He did it, and He created it so that we would come together in community, in family, around a table, around a meal, and have fellowship with each other. And, and, and also, of course, his hope would be that he would be invited to that table, that he would be part of that table. That seems to be clearly what he was hoping for. So as I've said many times before, things are not the way that they should be in our world today, are they? They're not. They're not at all the way they should be. But that's the reason, again, why Jesus came, to put things right again. And one of the ways, interestingly, that he demonstrates that, and Luke shows us so clearly, is eating meals with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. I I, I reprised, I read a book that I'd I'd read several years ago. I didn't read the whole thing this week, but I, I picked it back up. I read it maybe three, four years ago. It's Tim Chester's book called Meals with Jesus. It's an awesome book. And I didn't realize it, but as I opened it up and I'm looking at it this week, his whole book is based on the Gospel of Luke. And and he just gives some highlights. I want to show you that in Luke's gospel, here's just some highlights of how much eating and drinking and food 
is part of the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' ministry. We, we read this just last week in Luke chapter 5. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. In Luke 7, which we'll get to probably in another couple of months at this rate, is Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. Can't wait to get to that chapter. Actually, I think we're at it today. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, right? He invites, hey, listen, I'm coming to your place for dinner. Let's go. He, he invites himself. In Luke 22, we know this one. He, we have the account of the last meal, the last supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. I'm going to come back to that. Tim Chester actually quotes in his book another author who said this. He said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. It's, it's just consistent in the whole book. It's all about eating with people, eating food, having fellowship, and encouraging one another. I mean, even when Jesus is not eating, references to food are everywhere in the gospel. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable of a great banquet. In Luke 15, one of my favorite parables, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, which ends with what? A party, killing the fatted calf, a big meal. It's awesome. And on and on it goes. Literally, on and on it goes. And we're going to get there in this amazing book. But eventually, sadly, the Pharisees label Jesus this. Because of all this, the Pharisees, the religious types, label him a glutton and a drunkard because he was doing so much of it, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But that's why eating and drinking were so important to Jesus. It's part of his mission. It's part of the way that he wants to reach people. It's a sign of his friendship with sinners. It's a sign of how low he will go, as we saw last week. He wants to eat with these people. So what appears to be happening is that Luke is showing us that meals with Jesus represent something much, much bigger. Much, much bigger. They represent that Jesus came to make things and turn things back into the way that they should be. And that Jesus is instituting a new world, a new kingdom, and a brand new way. That's exciting. That's exciting. So now let's look at our text and let me make this one last comment before we dive in. I mean, you all know the practice that we had, and I highlighted it earlier as a church that we go through books of the Bible, and that one of the reasons for that and the good reasons about it is that we're always in context, you know, like we, we know what's going on, we've seen what's happened, and so we, we, we don't just drop into a passage because I, the pastor or the preacher, want to be able to teach you about something that I want you to know about. It could be my favorite thing, you know, that, that I want you to learn about and I don't know how many times I've, I've, I've actually heard this passage we're looking at today preached, and, and it, it actually has been about fasting. 
And I mean, before I've kind of like, oh, that's cool. I mean, it says right there, a question of fasting in your Bibles, right? And, and you, you look at it and it's like, well, yeah, of course. And then, of course, they, they show the negative side of it, of what the Pharisees had turned it into. But then they also say, you know, like today, there's, you know, for, you know, like when, when you're praying, we've been asking people related to the survey that we're doing that you should pray and fast over this. And so there's some really good elements of fasting. And by the way, it's good for your health, you know, cleansing and all that kind of stuff, right? And I've heard whole sermons about that. And, and it, on one level, it sounds like a great idea. But when it comes to the context, the fact of the matter is, this is not about fasting at all. It's not about fasting at all. So let's have a look, <laughs> and let's see what it's actually about. First verse that we read already, and I'll put it on screen, is this. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they eat and drink. <laughs> So let's start with they. Who are they? Well, we know from verse 30, just a little earlier, that the Pharisees and the scribes were there. They came to Jesus afterwards, and they were the ones questioning His disciples, why are you eating with these tax collectors and sinners? So we we know that they were there, and they're grumbling at the disciples. But Matthew, in his gospel, he starts this story off with these words. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So it's not a contradiction. The fact of the matter is both were there. The disciples of John were there along with the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're questioning what's going on. And then they say, notice it's not in the form of a question. It's not a question, really. It's an accusation, isn't it? I mean, the way they put it is, look, we, the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, we fast and we offer prayers, right? We do all this often, but yours, Jesus, your disciples, they just eat and drink all the time with sinners. It's, it's an accusation. It's not a question. So what's really going on here? Well, two things. Let's deal with the Pharisees first. Let's deal with those guys. It's always fun to look at the Pharisees who are representative of some of us in this church, in, not in this church, but hopefully, but in the church in general in the world today. Let's look at them. In the Old Testament, actually, there's only one instance where God commands that people should fast. It's found in Leviticus 16. I'm going to put that into your notes for this week for our, our small group studies. Just have a look at that. But it's related to the Day of Atonement. And, and it, was, it was a command by God to, to fast on that day. And it was supposed to be about being mournful, sorrowful, over atoning for what? sin, right? So, it's a picture of that. And, and it was to be the Sabbath, false Sabbath. So there was to be no working on this day, total rest, and it was a day commanded by God for fasting. It's great. It's about the atonement. And again, now picture that, right? The one time in the Old Testament that it's commanded that you fast is about atoning for sins. And it's a picture of who? Well, the one who atones for all of our sins through His blood that was shed on the cross, Jesus Christ. Kind of missed that. So, again, what, what do uh, uh, our wonderful Pharisees do at this point in time? Uh, well, you know what they do. They, they, they being the good and, and self-righteous men that they were, they figured out that, oh, this is great. This is, this is another awesome way for us to, to prove how how, how pure and righteous and holy we are. We'll, we'll, we'll just expand on God's Word and in God's command. We'll add to it, and we'll make this fasting thing into a weekly event. In fact, twice a week. 
by the time of Christ, when Christ arrives, they've, they've decided that it's now Mondays and Thursdays that you're to fast, right? And they, they poured this on people. It's one of the ways that they poured more uh, than the truth of the basic law and command of God on people, and it was a burden to people. But they really would put, and it's, some commentators feel that it was probably on a Monday while they're fasting that Matthew's having Jesus to his house for a big meal. So that's kind of ticking them off too, right? Because, like, we don't get to eat. It's kind of sad. But that's what they would do. They would make it Monday and Thursday. So here's what they would do also, though. On Monday morning, they would get up, and they would go get their fasting clothes. Now, their fasting clothes were interesting. They were pretty much the most beat-up, disheveled-looking clothing, torn, dirty, that they owned, and usually dark in color. And, and uh, the, just to make things, you know, like to add to that, they would, if they had um, bed hair or whatever in the morning, they needed no product for this. Um, uh, in those days, they just, they, they wanted their hair to look really messy and disheveled and oily maybe, and, and, and they would mess it up and so forth. And then, and then just to add to the effect... They would, they would get some ash from the fire in their house, right? And they'd maybe rub it on their pants and put a little bit on their face so they would look like whitewashed tombs. Oh, excuse me, that's a different passage, but that's kind of what would happen, right? And then what they would do, now they'd be ready to go to town. And they would walk around very sad and sorrowful and beating their chests. And they would look so pious and righteous before all the people. And they would guilt trip everybody else into... You look, you need to be like us. If you want to please God and to bring honor and glory to God, you need to behave this way. <laughs> That's what they turned it into in that day. And so, I mean, you can just imagine. I mean, Jesus is like, guys, <laughs> you're, you're missing the point altogether, altogether. It's terrible what they've done. Now, let's just look at it. Um, from this perspective also. You know, we, fasting is not about that, is it? It's not about that at all. But that's exactly what these guys wanted to make it about, isn't it? Now, the question is, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to make the whole situation with Jesus and what's going on all about that? Well, because it's their religion, Number one, it's their religion. They, they, they believe that us doing this, behaving this way, this is our way of continually every week, twice a week, proving our righteousness and our loyalty to God and atoning for our sins. And we're so sorry, Lord, that, you know, and that's why John the Baptist was calling them out to true repentance, because clearly they weren't repenting. And so that was the first. But listen, clearly the other reason is this. The reason why they were so sold out to fasting and they were trying to make that the issue of this story is because they did not want to eat and drink with those kind of people, the people that Jesus came to eat and drink with. That's rather sad. So which is better, really, from their perspective? Think about it. Fast two days a week, gain favor with God and with man, right? And with those whom you serve, keep your religion for your own people, your own race, and frankly, for people who were culturally pure and refined as you are. After all, who wants to live a life working so hard to be so righteous and, and pure and holy and giving to God and all the rest of it, and then have to share all of your success, success and wealth and, and, and prestige with those people? I don't want those kind of people at my table. I want people who are like me or better, a little bit further along than me, better than me, because then they will elevate me. 
There's no possible way that anybody here or any of us could get caught up in that today, is it? <laughs> Not likely. What about John the Baptist's disciples? They need to be cut a little bit of slack here, I think, because most of them uh, were probably not around when Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, came and, and descended on Jesus as a dove, and, and, and after his baptism, and John the Baptist had baptized him, and the, and the Father's voice was heard, this is my son, who I'm well pleased, my beloved son. They were probably not there for that, even though John the Baptist had probably told them, no, 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 guys, you need to go follow Jesus, not me anymore. And that's maybe why they were there. And so they're still a little confused. They, they're still like trying to be good Jewish boys. They've, they've really bought into the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist gave them, but they're here with the rabbis and, and the Pharisees. And so now Jesus responds to all of them, and in his response, he makes it very clear to them and to us, if it wasn't already, what this is really all about. It's so succinct. It's amazing how he does it. It's beautiful. He says this, and Jesus said to them, "'Can you make wedding guests?' fast while the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. <laughs> so this is the first instance in the gospel, probably in the chronology also of Jesus' ministry, um, where Jesus is identified as the bridegroom, and he's identifying himself that way as well. When they heard this, those Pharisees, scribes, John the Baptist's disciples, they immediately knew exactly what he was getting at, even though the word bridegroom was never referred to the Messiah in the Old Testament. They knew what he was getting at. They heard it and they understood. First, they knew that there were well-established rabbinical rules, well-established rabbinical rules, that if you were going to a wedding or a wedding feast, which usually lasted up to seven days, there was no fasting. I mean, come on, this is a time for joy and happiness and, and celebration for seven days. Let the wine flow like the wedding at Cana that Jesus, you know, blessed the water and turned it into more wine. It's a day for that. I mean, unless, of course, the Father's not too impressed with the groom. Okay, so, but it's a time for that. It's not a time for that. And so there were well-established rabbinical rules in place where that would take place. That was first. Wedding feasts, as I said, they, they, they lasted up to seven days, so the idea was be joyful, happy, no fasting required. They knew that. Second, they would also have understood this. Jesus is pointing to himself as the Messiah. And if that is the case, who in his right mind, after the Day of Atonement, after the Messiah arrives, who in his right mind is going to want to fast? He's here. Let's eat with him. Let's be joyful and be glad. It would be a time for great feasting. So then Jesus drops the first hint in the gospel of his impending death, a future prophetic event, when he says, when I, the bridegroom, have been taken away, then they will fast. That's important. So now listen, imagine for a moment with me, uh, if you can, uh, what it would be like to be truly sorrowful, sorrowful to the point where you have lost your appetite. Uh, imagine being at a hospital with uh, friends who've lost a child or a spouse. W wouldn't the last thing that you'd be thinking when you're sitting there with them in, in the, the moments, the, the, the minutes, the hours after that event, wouldn't the last thing that you'd, you'd be want to recommend to them be, let's go for a mushroom burger? Who would have an appetite? 
Nobody would have an appetite for that. I mean, the reality is your stomach aches, but not for food. Not for food at all. Now, again, I alluded to this a little earlier, but you all remember what happened after Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected, right? We looked at this on Easter Sunday. You'll remember that, you know, he, he, he reappears, he rises from the dead on Easter Sunday. One of the first things he does is he goes to those two who are on the road to Emmaus. They're walking away sorrowful and sad, and they're talking to themselves about all these things that went on in Jerusalem and how he died, and he said he was going to rise on the third day, but it's now later in the afternoon, and we haven't seen him yet. They're pretty sorrowful, and they're walking home. They've given up. Jesus comes alongside of them. You know the whole story. What is, what is it that reveals him to them? He breaks bread with them. He breaks bread with them. And immediately, they knew it was Jesus. And they run back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Then immediately, following that, he appears to the disciples in the upper room where they're hiding for what? Fear. (laughs) Fear. Not too hungry when you're full of fear that people are going to put you to death next after him. And they're maybe not consciously fasting. And then Jesus appears to them. And then right after that, right after Jesus' appearance to them, he asks for something to eat. And we read this in Luke 24. It says this, And while they still disbelieved, but now look at this, for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? I, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. What's Jesus saying? The fast is over, boys. Let's feast. Let's feast some more. The bridegroom went away. They fasted. The feast is over. Jesus goes on to instruct these Pharisees and scribes and John the Baptist boys. He says this. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So Jesus finishes off with a couple of illustrations. Uh, Our translation says the word parable here. It's not really a parable uh, in the sense of all the other parables of Jesus. That word can also be translated illustration or analogy um, or comparison even. even. The two illustrations actually point uh, to the second point that this conclusion of Chatru is teaching them, and that I think is this. It's that the gospel cannot be added or contained by any other religion or system. None. This is what Paul in Galatians will, remember we went through the book of Galatians together? What he'll eventually start writing about is that guys, guys, <laughs> the Judaizers come down and say, hey, it's a good thing you guys have become Christians and followers of Jesus, but you forgot something. You need to become Jewish first, right? You need to practice the law and you need to be circumcised, men. You know, don't worry. It'll, you need to do that. We must see how offensive this would have sounded to the Pharisees. Jesus is literally saying to them this, listen, he's saying, guys, gentlemen, the gospel of my kingdom, my kingdom is what God is doing now, it's new. It's new. Your religion is old. It's done. You can't take the gospel of grace, you can't take the gospel of forgiveness for sinners and add it to your old religion. I'm thinking they would be not surprised, I'm thinking they would be pretty furious with Jesus at this point. And as we'll see next week in the passage, yeah, they became very, very furious. 
to the point where they then said, okay, it's time to kill him. We've had enough of this. Made them very furious at this point. So this is important. Let me also state this. Jesus is referring to Judaism here. He's referring to the religion that they turned their faith in God into and they'd built to found righteousness before God through their good works. He's not talking about the Old Testament, and he's not talking about the law. That's not what he's saying is old and I've got something new. The law is eternal, by the way. He's not saying that, so that's an important distinction. He then goes on to add this. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be first put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I mean, repetition or what? The previous verse, these verses, you see it, right? New, old, new, old, new, old. Now, done. Can't put these two together. You cannot put these two together. The illustration was clear to them again. They knew that they could not put new wine into old wineskins. They knew that. Old wineskins would dry up, and as soon as you put new wine into them, they would crack, and you would spill the wine and be ruined. They knew that. So it was a clear illustration. They completely understood it. But verse 39 is a biting analogy by Jesus. It's biting. And we need to hear this today. And it says this, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. And this was their problem. This was their problem. And we suffer from this problem today too. Like the elder son in the story of the prodigal, they're invited to come into the party, aren't they? Jesus is inviting the Pharisees, the scribes, and John the Baptist's boys to come into the party, isn't he? He is, but they can't. They won't come in, just like the elder brother. And the reason is there are people at that party that they don't believe deserve to be there. Pretty sad, isn't it? Pretty sad. They'd rather hold on to their old ways and their old wine. I think we see that in many ways today. Um, Some people won't even entertain coming to a church. Listen, I know what Christians are all about. I've seen it on TV. Like, I know who who you hate, and and I know what you're against, and I know that you voted for that guy down, and on and on it goes, right? And so people get very set in their ways. There's no possible way I'm going to listen to that. They don't know anything about it, but they've made a decision. They're really, really hardened into that decision. They have their ideas, their mind are set, and no one's going to change their minds. Many of you know that I've quoted him before, not for some time, but my favorite motivational speaker who's not with us anymore. He's with Jesus, I believe, because he was a dynamic Christian man. His name was Zig Ziglar. And I love what he said at one point in time. He said, you know what? You've got to be really careful when you're in your 30s and 40s because stinking thinking will lead to hardening of the attitudes. Super true, right? People get to a certain point, their hearts are hardened against God. That's what this is all about. People get to that point where it's like, nah, you know what? I'll hang on to the old until I die pretty sad. So what should we learn? And what should we take away from this text and, and, and chapter today, this whole chapter? Well, I hope it's this. Uh, I think there are many reasons why God created us with a need for food, for a need for food every day. But one reason is that we would honor Him, we would honor our God by depending on Him, on His Son for our food and for our life every day. Amen?
That's why he did it. We're not going to, well, we are going to eat a grand meal in heaven. There's some confusion or discussion or debate about how much we're going to eat and what's going to happen with what we eat. And who knows? We don't know that. But we're going to eat. But we're going to have purified bodies and perfect bodies in heaven. So I also hope that we would learn that Jesus, look at, this is pretty clear in this whole chapter, Jesus came for sinners just like you and just like me. That's awesome. That's who he came for. And he is sending you and I to go and do what he did. Invite the least, the least, the last, and the lost to eat with us and with him. I hope we can learn that from this this passage here today and what we've looked at in the last few weeks. How about this? From today forward, consider how you feast and how you feast on and with Jesus at every meal. Consider that. Maybe, maybe rethink how you're going about it, you know, how you do that at, at every meal throughout the week with your family and especially with those that you invite into your home and into your church. How do you pray for each meal? I mean, that's why we pray for each meal, right? Because why Christians do that, it's not, again, to be outwardly seen to be holy, you know, and, and bowing in a restaurant. No, it, it's, it's because we're, we're acknowledging that before God. God, we're depending on you and we're depending on you in the sense that we, we put the sandwich together, but you provided it. How can we do that differently in our homes? I remember about a couple of years ago, I read a good book. I'm always reading books about these things. And, you know, like the, the, the challenge was, why, why do we pray with our eyes closed all the time? You know, at the dinner table, like, close your eyes and let's pray. And, well, I started praying with my eyes open and freaked Janice out. She's like, stop that. It's... And, and I'm like, well, and when we had community group, you know, we'd, I'd start praying with my, and we'd look at the table and look at each other and, Lord, thank you for this. And, like, find ways, come on. Find ways through our meals and the way that we give thanks and bless the food and how we pray in, in the way that we can honor and show how God is part of this and invite him to be part of this in our meals. We, we can show the gospel in every meal. Can we not? But especially, friends, when we invite others to our homes. Because listen, if, if at your own family dinner table, after church today, you're not talking about the message, the word about Jesus, you won't be doing it when you invite your, even your equal or better friends over, let alone the least, the last, and the lost. But that's what we're to be practicing. So I also want to ask us today, who's your mission field? I asked that last week. Who's your mission field? Let's remember this. Jesus also said this in Matthew 5, 46. This is challenging to me, and I hope it is to you too. He said, for, listen, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Did he not just flip this right here? He just flipped this whole thing. I love the way he does that. For most of us, the truth is, we want to have people over for dinner who are like us, who we like, or at least like us, right? That's who we want to have over for dinner. I want to just quickly say this in closing. I, I just a little story that happened a few years ago that just came to my mind. There's several, but it is this. I remember there was a time in our foyer out here in the school where uh, we were getting prepared for worship on a Sunday morning, and a man came in. And the man was um, quite disheveled. I would say late 40s, early 50s, very disheveled, messy hair. And as he got closer, he didn't smell well. (laughs) 
And I, I remember seeing a, a, a woman at, in a, a, who had come to our church, her family had come to our church, um, see her children smiling and going over to this man and, and quickly ran over and moved the kids away. It's not a judgmental thing that I'm saying, but that's, that's a question I have for us going forward as a church, and that is this. Regardless of where we gather as a church in the future, here or at the ledge or in a new building, I hope our heart, our goal is to invite these kind of people to the meal with us. And so my question for you, church, is are you ready for that? Are you ready for them? I think you are. It's not about our comfort and our ease at all, is it? Let's face it. Needy people are a lot of work. Just ask Jesus. Pray with me, would you?